I'm Dr. Yella Hewings-Martin, Senior Research Editor for Medical News Today. One year since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic, I'm joined by four journalists to discuss how they adapted to COVID-19. How did they effectively communicate rapidly emerging science? Now you have to really look carefully at it and make sure you're not covering something that perhaps is nonsense. What impact did pandemic politics have on their work? The politicians should be out front in terms of trying to help drive the public health message home. Not this time, because in the US at least, COVID came along right as our then president was facing re-election. And how has COVID-19 taken over not just their professional, but also their personal lives? I said, I think when I'm done work, I need to not talk about the pandemic. Like, let's talk about the dog (laughs) and how cute he is, because I just needed to give my brain a reset. First, let's meet our panel. I'm Roz Plater. I'm a freelance writer for Healthline.com, and I'm based out of the San Francisco, California area. I am Julia Reese. I'm a freelancer based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I freelance for Healthline along with a few other different publications. Hi, I'm Sarah Mitroff, and I am a senior editor for CNET, where I cover health and wellness, and I am based in San Francisco, California. I'm Tim Newman. I'm senior news editor at Medical News Today, and I'm based in the south of England. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hey, how are you? I wanted to start by talking about how covering COVID-19 has changed the way we work. For me, as a scientist, then health journalist, never in my wildest dreams did I think that we would be covering preprints, that we'd be looking at pharmaceutical press releases, you know, um, that we'd be looking at what people comment on Twitter and things like that. So we had to adapt the way that we approach our own topics to bring our readers the information that they want to know. I was just going to say it's something we wouldn't normally have done, but the news was moving faster than the peer review process. So we we had to latch on to those. And that was fine. But when you're covering a preprint or a press release, you have to make sure you've got the context right. Because when it's gone through peer review, you have to trust that there's been some level of scrutiny that people have looked at it and that it's worth being in a major journal. But now you're covering preprints, you have to really look carefully at it and make sure you're not covering something that perhaps is nonsense. So it meant every news story where we covered that, there was just a little bit more work in the background that we had to do before we could fully trust the story. Julia, you look like you want to say something. Yeah, so when the pandemic hit, we were learning everything in real time. So instead of having these studies that looked at thousands of people, we would have a study that looked at, you know, 50 or 100, like people who had gotten COVID-19 and scientists were studying this really small population and trying to take findings that could potentially apply to the general population. Ross? So I understood the medical terminology, a lot of science. I was a nurse before, but I'd done general assignment reporting mostly since then. So I had to immerse myself every day, everything I could read, listen to all the experts that I could listen to because the information was changing so rapidly. And then I developed a core of experts that I could turn to to ask questions about a new study or a new press release that we got about something. Was there any particular part of the emerging science that any of you struggled with? 
Yeah, one of the major problems that I found is that immunology is really hard. I did a, a degree in neuroscience, but I, I finished that in 2001. And I think I did a module in immunology and I swore that was the last time I was going to do any of it because, I mean, it's amazing, but it's so dense. That's how I felt. My background is in cell biology and in regenerative medicine and immunology and infectious biology are not really my strong points. And in fact, I've covered a lot of other stuff, but the immunology is the one thing where I always think it's like a layer upon layer and it gets more and more complex and nuanced. And um, we started talking about antibodies in the summer and T-cells. And at one point we said we should write something about T-cells. And that article, I really enjoyed reading it, but I was really worried that somebody would write in and go, you've mixed up a CD4 and a CD8 cell and it's totally the wrong thing. But I feel like we've gone above and beyond to make sure that what's there is like 100% accurate, 100% useful because now everybody's interested in health. So Sarah, you normally cover like quite a breadth of topics at CNET, which is a technology and consumer electronics website. How did you deal with reporting on the pandemic? One of the biggest challenges that we had as a more mainstream news organization, we dealt with a lot of sensationalist headlines and pressure to jump on those similar headlines. And I ended up spending a decent amount of time last year fighting to make sure we're not jumping on headlines that sounded really sensationalist. And a good example was a study came out basically testing the methodology of testing face masks. The study was specific to testing a testing process, right? And the results of the study happened to mention when we tested different types of face masks, here's the results we got. And net gators ended up being somehow really horrible at preventing the spread of the coronavirus. So headlines popped up about basically wearing a net gator is worse than not wearing anything at all, which seems completely absurd because it is. The reality is a piece of cloth covering your face is going to be better than nothing covering your face. And I wrote the opposite story because I reached out to the study author and clarified that he was not making a case about neck gaiters. He was making a case about a methodology. And so I really wanted to make sure we were not playing into that game because it makes us look bad. It provides information to the reader that's absolutely sensationalist and wrong and fear-mongering. And so that was a big part of my coronavirus strategy last year was to be really vigilant about what we covered and not buy into the fear that was going on out there. Yeah, I think that health journalism sort of more broadly in the past has really been slated for those sort of terrible headlines. Bananas will give you cancer. Bananas will cure cancer. And they do that because it gets traffic. And that's sadly always going to be the case. And so we've always tried to steer clear of that and making sure that you add as many caveats as you can because people are already scared for good reason. It's a pandemic. We don't need to be making people more scared. But then the interesting sort of flip side of that is that there are certain people, as we know, that still think it's a pandemic or a hoax. And so to a certain extent, you want them to be more scared than they are or just a little bit scared. And so you've got to make it clear that it is serious and that people do need to take it seriously. So it's quite a tricky path to walk, I think. Julia? I kind of saw how that sensationalization played out in real life because 
I have friends and family members who they were reading all these super sensationalized stories. And I just think those headlines almost created that mental health epidemic on top where it was just really like freaking people out 24-7. And there was just a balanced way to go about it. Yeah. And with so much information coming in, I felt like the more information overload, the more people get overwhelmed by that. And then they start to distrust because it's like they'll focus in on one specific detail, but then they don't want to deal with the entire body of evidence out there. And so it was a unique challenge in that every day, every week, there was something new happening that felt really scary. And it was kind of weeding through what is really serious and what should we really be paying attention to versus what is being blown way out of proportion and distracting people from what really matters. And do you know, when we first started hearing about COVID-19, before it was even known as COVID-19, I remember having a chat with Yella and people were starting to get worried about it. But I thought that we were just going to get away with it, like we did with SARS and bird flu and BSE. And I just thought this is another thing that the media has blown out of all proportion. And I think a lot of people thought that. And it was fair enough because the media in the past has blown things out of proportion and in a way shot themselves in the foot because this time it really was serious and we weren't ready for it or expecting it because we're so used to people saying that bananas cure cancer all the time. I actually have an example of my own work. So very early on in the pandemic, like right at the end of March, I did a series of interviews and one of the interviews contacted me afterwards and said, I'm very surprised that you've chosen this headline. And I was a bit surprised because it was a direct quote. So I didn't feel like I'd misrepresented what he said. But he said, you know, it was like one aspect of the things that we talked about. Um, but we took his point very seriously and we changed the headline immediately the next morning. So I was wondering whether you guys had any experiences of a similar thing where you were a bit tempted to go, I'm going to go with this angle. But then actually you caught yourself or afterwards you're like, maybe I should have done it differently. Just me then. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have that specific example, but it is really interesting looking back at some of the first stories that I wrote on the coronavirus. And I think this kind of combines what you just said and what Tim just said, where I totally rely on the experts I speak to. But that first story I wrote was talking about what was going on in China and that it wasn't in the United States yet. And People shouldn't be fearful. And that was entirely based on what experts were telling me. And looking back at that article, I cringe so hard because I'm like, COVID was totally here at that point in time and we just didn't know it. And that was really interesting for me because it kind of just really woke me up to the fact that this was a totally brand new experience that even stumped the best experts across the globe. That's really interesting how even the experts were struggling, particularly in those early days. Now, I want us to move on to some of the other issues that this pandemic has raised. For me, those are gender issues and also health inequity issues. I was wondering how everybody's coped with going from reporting on a virus to going into public health. Then we had a whole gender imbalance issue and health inequity, bringing all those topics together and finding the right balance. Ross, do you want to start? Yeah, we did probably a couple stories about how there is a disparity between people of color not getting treatment, being frontline workers, being more susceptible to getting the virus. 
and how there was a lack of, even now with the lack of vaccines going to that group, with the lack of treatment, a lack of people in the neighborhood health centers to actually go to. And I think it exposed a lot of the disparities in healthcare for people of color that we hadn't really thought much about before. Even the people who were more vulnerable to it had a lot of the chronic illnesses that also people of color have in larger numbers simply because of the lack of healthcare, lack of insurance, lack of access, and just in general, stuff like that. So I think that there are a number of things that this pandemic uncovered and brought to the forefront that we hadn't thought much about before. And Ros, it's maybe a good time then to move on to the interplay or the intersection between public health and politics. Right. So the normal way that this probably should have gone was that the scientists would say, hey, here's what's going on. And the politicians would be out front in terms of trying to help drive the public health message home and tell people what they should be doing and facilitate getting it done. Not this time, because in the U.S. at least, COVID came along right as our then president was facing re-election. And even though, as we discovered later, the scientists had said, look, this is very bad, it's airborne, there is the possibility that this becomes epidemic. And that hadn't been listened to because he wanted to, quote, as he said, downplay it and not draw much attention to it because he said he didn't want people to panic. But also the optics weren't good for re-election, a lockdown, things being closed down, that kind of thing. So there was this whole misinformation campaign that we had to deal with. And that led to people thinking it's a hoax and not believing. And then the mask became an issue. Let's not wear those because it's a hoax. And, you know, why should we go along with this pandemic that isn't really for real? And there was this interference in the institutions that we usually come to trust, you know, the Centers for Disease Control, the FDA. There are these pushes to try um, fringe treatments and also for the CDC not to put out the messages that they wanted to put out about mask wearing and social distancing and all that in the early days of this. So it really interfered in maybe ways that still have, I think, a long lasting effect and we maybe had not seen in this way before. Julia? I relate and connect to everything you just said. But um, on a personal level, before the pandemic, if you wrote about, for example, the health benefits linked to the Mediterranean diet and you you wouldn't get this lash out against the findings. People kind of generally were like on board with what science was saying. And I really experienced personally putting a story that was very science and fact-based out there and then having people lash out at me on Twitter, which I haven't experienced before. So if it was something about like the science behind masks or the lockdowns in the beginning, um, really actually just anything <laughs> related to the coronavirus and I kind of quickly saw just how polarized the country was, even with small things that I was writing about. And I have family members across the political spectrum, and I would try to have these conversations in real life too, which was very, very difficult. But just from handling that in the real world, I kind of saw that if somebody is tied to a specific belief system or conspiracy theory, that the best way to handle that was to just share the facts, give all the science and the expert opinions. And as much as I would love to just scream and say, this is what the science says, like, how do you not believe it? That is not effective. That makes people defensive. Sarah? 
Yeah, it was just endlessly frustrating to see how anytime we put out, you know, here's some sound science about what's going on and ways in which to prevent, you know, the spread or getting yourself sick, how people were just so cold or hostile to that, especially given where they live. And a lot of the issue in the United States is that every state has its own governor who kind of dictates how that state's going to handle the response or what kind of measures they're going to take. And it's like we all have the same science, and yet every state or multiple states had different approaches. We even see this now with Texas lifting the mask mandate. And it's like we're all living in the same country. The borders are very fluid. There's there's nothing stopping anybody in Texas from getting sick and someone in Arkansas not. And so it was just so frustrating to see, especially the CDC getting more and more restricted in what they could say and these experts being more and more pushed away from the mainstream because our administration really wanted to present a facade that everything is fine. Even when the president got sick, it was kind of a circus of, you know, everything's fine and he's going to the hospital, but he's in this car waving at people. It was, it was such a joke. And it was so frustrating because it added fuel to the fire for the people who already didn't believe this, who already thought it was a hoax. And I just keep thinking back to if he had just worn a mask in the beginning, I wonder where we would be. I wonder if things would be better. I don't think that it would be dramatically different, but I think we could have done a lot better had he been on board, but he was hostile from the beginning and it really didn't do anyone any good. So Julia, you mentioned your family and your friends. So maybe now that's a good time then to move on to how the pandemic has affected us personally and our work-life balance. Yeah, so my traditional style is that I'll dive into a story and then when I'm done work at the end of the day, like I really turn it off. That's just something I've always really prioritized. And then in March, that all got thrown upside down because I was put on the coronavirus stories. So every day I was speaking to experts about the emerging science and people that were sick. And then I would finish my work day and I would go sit with my boyfriend and I would hear about how his industry was impacted by COVID-19 which, you know, the answer is always very sad. And then I would go talk to my 94-year-old grandmother who was in an assisted living facility in Florida, and she was locked in her room for months, and that was very, very sad. And then I would talk to my parents. My dad has a heart condition that puts him at risk, so he was very worried. So basically, I would go from working on these heavy stories all day to then living it 24-7 and going on social media where... It was just my friends posting more COVID stories, posting really sad truths about all the racial injustices that were going on in the country, Um, politics, which couldn't have been more depressing in 2020. So I definitely realized that I needed to figure something out because what I was doing was not going to be sustainable. And I had a conversation first with my boyfriend and I said, I think when I'm done work, I need to not talk about the pandemic Like, let's talk about the dog (laughs) and how cute he is because I just needed to give my brain a reset. And then I had that same conversation, you know, with my parents and my brother. And I think that was the first thing I did. And then on social media, I started restricting what hours I let myself go on. And I eventually just ended up deactivating my Instagram because I felt so much better under those restricted hours. But did you guys experience that? 
personal boundary just being like totally toiled with. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like my world got kind of thrown upside down and I went from working in an office all the time to being stuck at home. San Francisco went into a sort of shelter in place lockdown for a while. And so we were living in this kind of fearful society where people didn't want to go out, especially the first several like weeks and months of that initial lockdown. And then dealing with people that I lived with and their fears, dealing with my friends' fears, kind of playing whack-a-mole with my family because my mom, while taking it somewhat seriously, was also kind of doing her own thing. And I would be screaming and being like, why are you going out and seeing people? And, you know, I took this very seriously, but I had friends who didn't. And so it just felt like this hurricane of craziness going on where I'm having to live and breathe this every single day. And I feel like today still it's everything is sort of a calculated risk of like, what activities do I do to get myself away from my work? And what feels safe? What doesn't feel safe? How can I see my friends and family? How can I protect myself? It's been really difficult to make that balance work in the last year. And it's just starting to feel more attainable now that we're getting closer to better herd immunity and the possibility of life returning to somewhat of normal. Yeah, I I certainly found it difficult to switch off when the only thing that you're presented with after work is stuff that you might have to cover the next day at work. It makes it really difficult to put your mind into neutral. And I think you need to have a bit of neutral time, otherwise you can't continue to function. And uh, we had lockdown here. I've got two young kids And it meant that I was worried about them because they were still going to nursery for some of the time. I was worried about me. I was worried about my wife, worried about my parents, then getting to work. And you're sort of worried about your team because, you know, everyone's stressed out and under pressure and feeling the strain and everything's weird because you're online all of a sudden. No one can go into the office and see their friends or go to the pub. And I'm still not really dealing with it very well, I don't think. One of the, uh, the jobs that I've had every day since the pandemic started on most days, is updating the the number of cases globally and the number of deaths every day on our update article. And some days I just copy the numbers across. And then some days, if you're feeling a bit stressed or anxious, you just consider the huge loss that there's been. And personally, I find that really difficult to deal with some days. Um, And you just have to try and cut yourself off from it. But that is a real challenge when it's just everywhere you look. It is. Ross, how has covering COVID affected you? I don't have anybody, fortunately, that's close to me that I've lost from COVID. But we did a story about the survivors of medical workers' families. And I still hear from one or two of the, um, one more now, but for a while I heard from two of them who would just send me a note in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning back east, talking about the loneliness or the loss or how they're still dealing with that. So it put me a little bit closer to, you know, not just doing a story and telling their story, but getting a little bit of insight about how it affects them. For a while, it was a little bit heavy, but I felt good that they had somebody they thought they could speak to and talk to a little bit. I think it's almost like two camps, isn't it? Where you have those really clear boundaries. And then I think Rose and I are a bit more, we've taken the immersive approach. So I feel like I've been living and breathing almost 24-7, but like I found my pace with it. And then I also have small children. So that's like my time when I switch off and you have to be very in the moment with them and then they go to bed and like I'm back in the game. And I suppose for me, 
it's meant there have been sort of fewer surprises. Like I feel like I'm on top of what's happening and maybe the changes are more incremental rather than like a massive pivot point. And also, I suppose from my point of view, my escape, if you can call it that, has been like looking at the science and then going, it's very terrible, but there's also some very groundbreaking science. And that's interesting and stimulating without those sort of very overwhelming topics that we touch on as well. And I found the balance in there somehow. I always say I have no pets, plants or kids. So it's just me. But I have just been immersed, you know, the reading in the morning. And I set all of my phones and iPads and everything to all these news alerts. And they're dinging constantly. I have the privilege of at night deciding to put my phone away. So thinking about that and then how doctors and nurses and healthcare workers don't have the option to put it away. I think the fact that I can feel as impacted by living this 24-7 but have the choice at night to kind of control that, like I just, my heart goes out to healthcare workers even more because they don't have that. And I, I just cannot imagine the gravity that they're feeling every minute of every day. That's something that I think about when I'm starting to feel really sorry for myself. I just say, get a grip. You're not on the front line, Tim. You're just writing some words on the screen. You've got to get over yourself. You're not, your life's not actually in danger when you're sat in your shed in your garden. Thank you, everyone. I just wanted to do some final thoughts and ask, what do you think will happen next? Sarah, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, I will say, like Tim mentioned, I thought the same thing when this started. Oh, it's like SARS. It's like bird flu. You know, we'll get through this. It'll affect a population of people. I never expected it to become a worldwide pandemic. And it really opened my eyes to so many things of how we handle public health crises in the United States, across the world. And it changed my perspective of so many things. And I'm so much more vigilant about how I protect myself from getting sick now. I'm probably gonna wear a mask when I'm sick in the future as just a courtesy. I've realized how important that is. And I've learned looking at Asian countries, I'm like, you guys had the right idea. And we always thought that was so absurd. And now I don't think it is at all. And for the next steps, I'm really excited about the fact that the vaccines are rolling out. I know I'm at the bottom of the list as a young, healthy person, but I'm, so excited for that day, even though I don't like vaccines or shots very much. I'm going to be thrilled to get that. And I'll get to do the things I love to do again someday, like travel and see my friends and host dinner parties. And I feel so much more hopeful than I did six months ago, even. Rose, I'll ask you next. I was going to say that my little niece after 9-11 was asked to write a paper in school. She was in elementary school, asked to write a paper about how it had changed their lives. And she wrote one sentence, I'm not the same me, the end. Um, and I think that's it. We're never going to be the same people anymore. I think we'll be obsessed about health. That's probably good for all of us. People are going to be wanting to read every little thing about viruses and how to stay healthy and those kinds of things. And I think that's rubbed off on me a lot more too. But I hope the changes are good ones and that they'll stick. How about you, Julia? I think here we talked a lot about our own experiences writing about and living in the pandemic. And I just think it's important for people to recognize that no matter what you're doing for work, where you are living, this was very, very hard. And it's important to 
acknowledge how you're feeling and be really patient and gentle with yourself. I think there's a lot to be hopeful about. Like Sarah said, the vaccine distribution is really ramping up and we know the shots are incredible. Like what an innovative year for science this has been. So like, there's just a lot to be hopeful about. And I think together we will come out of it. And Tim? Overall, I'm hoping that as we come out of it, as people get vaccinated, there'll be a bit of a resurgence in an interest in science because it's not been politics that's got us out of this. It's been science. And I hope that a lot of people turn to reputable scientific sources and start taking an interest in that side of things and that over time people will just be a bit more au fait with science and the language of science and if something does happen like this again which it might next time the communication of science will be less difficult and it will become less divisive and that politicians won't be able to steer the public in the wrong direction because everyone will have got a better understanding of how these things work. Yeah and I think for me You know, we talked about the fact that health was a bit of a niche topic and I'm hoping it will now be a topic for everyone. But I also hope that personally and as a team, we will be able to advocate for health for all in a different way. Because a pandemic that's affected all of us the same, but then not all of us in the same way, I think it's highlighted these vast differences in in the societies that we live in, but also globally. And I'm, I'm hoping that will give us a platform to start bringing these topics to the forefront in a different way and then sustainably address them. And I guess as health journalists, we have our small part to play in giving this platform. Thank you, Tim Newman, Julia Rees, Ross Plater and Sarah Mitra. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Make sure you follow all things COVID-19 at our dedicated hub at medicalnewstoday.com forward slash coronavirus. I'm Dr. Yella Hughes-Martin, and this is a high-vis radio production for Medical News Today. Medical News Today.